this whole deck, this whole narrative is really about empowering product managers to lead and empowering the rest of the business to believe in that leadership and to believe in their own ability to lead and to meet them halfway because product managers can't lead without the support of everybody else and everybody else having product thinking as well. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hi, I'm Yaniv. And I'm Chris. And today's episode, we're going to continue with our little two-part series about transforming your org into a product-led company. As we discussed in the first episode, this is Yanev and I unpacking an ebook that I published in January of 2023, and we're walking through that ebook. Part one, we talked about the context of what is product, what is product-led, and why is it the best model versus all the rest, versus marketing-led or sales-led or CEO-led or engineering-led. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. And if you want to follow along at home, you don't need to have the deck in front of you, but it might be a little fun to go through the slides as we're talking. So you can check that out at chrissard.com slash startup scale. And it's the second ebook on that page. Or you can check out the show notes and we'll have a link straight there and you can check it out as well while you listen. Okay, Chris. Well, let's jump in now. And what we want to talk about today is how you actually transform your company and make it product led. So what are some of the prerequisites we need to make that happen? Yeah, that's right. Specifically, we're going to talk about product managers. Where do they live inside your org? How product managers interact with the business and how the business interacts with the product managers. What don't they need? How do you get out of their way and let them do effective work? And then how do you do business-wide planning and alignment with the product leadership team so that everyone's running in the same direction? And then finally, once you understand all these things, what should you go do next to begin this transformation at your company? So getting started, I think it's important to first note that world-class scalable products, which is the goal of every startup, we talked about this in the last episode, right? Scalable products create disruption, and that's what you're really ultimately aiming for, to pocket that economic value that comes from disruption. Well, world-class scalable products that create that kind of disruption require great leadership, they require focus, and they require alignment across the whole company. Everybody needs to get involved. And everybody needs to be rowing in the same direction. So really, there are a series of prerequisites that have to be true at your company before the product leadership team, before the product leadership culture can really take. Yanev, you used the metaphor in the last episode of like a body rejecting the organ. Well, you need to get these things right in order for that organ rejection to not occur. Absolutely. So the first of these is empowered senior product leadership. So tell me, Chris, what do you mean by that? How do you know that you have that empowered senior product leadership? Well, the first thing you need to really think about is actually having a chief product officer on the senior leadership team. Now, I've seen many cases where there is the chief financial officer, product officer, and chief bottle washer who like does three or four different things at the company. I've seen the COO be the chief product officer. I've seen the CEO. I've seen the CTO. All of these people who are also CPO, they're also the chief product officer. And that is typically, unless this person is a unicorn rock star, once in a generation mind, 
is typically a recipe for disaster because those other functions have other worldviews. They have other perspectives, right? The CFO is thinking about the money and the runway. The COO is thinking about operations. The CMO is thinking about marketing. The CTO is thinking about engineering. It's all of those dysfunctions we talked about in the first episode in this series, the last episode of the podcast. And all of those dysfunctions are likely to creep in when you have a chief product officer wearing two hats or three hats. So you want a dedicated, experienced, respected chief product officer who has a seat at the table and has an authoritative way of delivering information, building consensus and creating space for the product management team to be successful. So that makes sense, but I've got something, it's somewhere between a question and a challenge and it's about the CEO, right? I think quite often one of the things that I've seen go wrong is that there is conflict between the CPO and the CEO, especially if it's a non-founder CPO, because the CEO is still ultimately the person who owns that product vision and there isn't that sufficient level of empowerment and separation between the CEO and the product itself that you can have a senior C-level person with sufficient ownership. Yeah, I think something we haven't said explicitly enough in these two episodes is my ebook is really intended more for small to large scale-ups, right? So when you're talking about a very early company, maybe with three or five or seven people, I think it absolutely makes sense for an experienced CEO founder who knows a little bit about product to be the product person. I've seen that go very, very wrong. If they're inexperienced, they don't know what to ask for. They don't know how to be disciplined. But the ideal case is absolutely that you have a CEO founder who understands product and they're the ones leading product. But as you get larger, Yanev, we've talked about the founder journey and the need for the CEO to take a more of an executive role to start building the thing that builds the thing. They need to hire a really competent chief product officer and take a step back. And if they don't, they end up in that dysfunction that we talked about in the last episode, which is being CEO led, right? They have the CEO in there thrashing and randomizing the team and creating this conflict. And so you're right. It is extremely important that the CEO has good product instincts and ideally even product experience at the beginning. And it's ideal that that CEO knows how to hire and empower a CPO and take a clean step back while being a great collaborator with that CPO at the executive level. Yeah. And I think maybe the nuance there is depending on the type of CEO founder you have, you probably need a slightly different kind of CPO. If you have a very visionary product forward CEO, you're right. You still need to be able to delegate that, but you need a CPO who can absorb the founder's vision and represent the founder's vision in their product thinking very effectively. Whereas if you have a CEO who has less of that product vision is more commercial or technical or something like that. The CPO really needs to be the person who drives forward the product vision. I think where it can not work is if you don't have that complementary yin and yang between the CEO and the CPO. So if you are listening to this and you are a CEO evaluating and hiring a chief product officer, you should think first, what sort of CEO am I? And then what sort of CPO complements me in growing the business? A key word I have here in the ebook is an empowered senior product leader, right? One of the mistakes I've often seen is that CEO either not setting the right expectations with the leadership team or continuing to engage with the R&D team as if the CPO wasn't there, talking directly to engineering about what he wants done or talking directly to designers or talking directly to product managers. 
and in some ways circumventing or again randomizing what the CPO is trying to do. Now, I'll never for a second suggest that the organization should be strictly hierarchical and people shouldn't be allowed to talk to each other, but just that there's a lack of care about what the CEO says or asks for or messages they propagate down without looping in that chief product officer and making sure it goes through a process. And so the key word in all of this is an empowered senior product leader who is wearing just that hat. And Yanev, I like your addition, who is a yin to the CEO's yang and has the CEO's trust and confidence and has been given the right authority through the words and actions of the CEO and leadership team to do their best work. Fantastic. So now let's move on to the next prerequisite, which is effective processes and communication. Now, I would say that's true regardless of whether you're product-led or not. But tell me what you mean in the context of becoming a product-led organization. What do effective processes and communication look like? This whole discussion, right, is about rotating over to product-led. It suggests a transition from something else. And so that transition needs to be really explicit and really well-managed. The first thing it looks like is the CEO and the leadership team clearly endorsing the role of the chief product officer and product in the culture of the company. The CEO setting really great expectations with the leadership team. The leadership team setting great expectations at an all hands with the whole company. The individual department heads setting great expectations with their direct reports and making sure that they're showing a supportive posture for the chief product officer. And so that is all about downwards communication from the top. The other key requirement here is that the leadership team provides the chief product officer enough time to establish a regular cadence and high quality communication from the product org to the rest of the business, right? It takes some six or 12 months before this chief product officer can get to know the personalities, get to know the things in motion, understand where some of the dysfunctions are, try to meet with leaders of other departments and smooth out wrinkles and to start creating roadmaps and narratives and start creating a cadence of communication with the rest of the business. So the rest of the business can start to get transparency and trust with product as a leadership function in the business. And so that takes time and it requires patience and when those deliverables get provided, it takes diligence. It takes the other department heads to actually open those documents and to pay attention to them and to engage with them. I agree in some sense as a transition here, but I'd actually like to broaden the scope. This isn't necessarily only applicable to companies that are going from a non-product-led model into a product-led one. I see, again, with my own startup, Circular, we endeavor to be product-led from the beginning and one of our founding team is our chief product officer. Nonetheless, it is important to embed that culture for those effective processes and communication to happen. Even early on, communication is a really an important part. And remember, you're hiring people into your organization who very likely have not experienced a culture in the first place. So even if you are already product-led, it still requires this constant process of communication and alignment to actually make sure that it happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you're right, you're onboarding typically a lot of people who are not used to this. And so it has to be part of your onboarding process as well. And almost, for lack of a better term, part of your indoctrination process. I use the word acculturation, which sounds less mean than indoctrination. But yeah, I think this is the point. Product-led is a way of thinking and it's cultural as much as anything else. We talked about that in the last episode. And so there's transitioning from one culture to another, which is what you're talking about, Chris. But there's also just embedding 
and maintaining the culture in the first place. So even if you never had a sales-led culture in the past, there is still the same work really that needs to happen. It might be slightly less friction, but fundamentally it's the same thing. We've had episodes about alignment, great communication and culture setting. That all applies right here as well. The next prerequisite for great product leadership and a great product culture, surprise, surprise, is experienced product managers. Yanev, we talked in the last episode about grafting this thinking onto existing companies and there being an organ rejection. And I have personally seen that where you might have organized the company into these squads and you've put these product managers in these squads. And you've told them that they're these autonomous sovereign entities who are supposed to play a leadership role. But if those product managers themselves are inexperienced or have some kind of imposter syndrome or don't quite believe you or don't quite know how to build consensus or don't quite know how to make good decisions or don't have good taste. This is like setting the whole company on a foundation that is quicksand. And so you need to look around the company and ask yourself with very clear eyes, are the product managers we have competent enough to have the strategy and the tactics of the business on their back? And if the answer is no, then you're going to need to hire some really great coaches, hire a really great chief product officer who can also perform coaching functions and great middle managers, group product managers to help and possibly more directly replace or graft experienced product managers into the product org. Otherwise, there will be a real struggle for product and the product culture to earn and maintain that credibility over time and frankly, to have a good outcome. There is a severe shortage of experienced product managers out there, right? Because an experienced product manager means not just someone with the job title product manager who has had experience in that job title. It means someone who is experienced working as a product manager in a product-led organization. Otherwise, they're not really performing that function of product management. And so it's not wrong, but it's controversial in the sense that if every company simultaneously tried to become product-led, there simply isn't that availability, that supply of experienced product managers, especially in many parts of the world further away from Silicon Valley, to actually do this. And so while I would agree, this is the ideal state, and maybe this is what you were saying, Chris, when you're talking about a chief product officer who is a good coach and whatnot, is I think the second best thing to being able to hire experienced product managers is to have a very experienced, strong chief product officer and some quite junior product managers who are talented and willing to learn, very coachable. I would rather go for that than to go for more experienced product managers who have a bunch of bad habits that they need to unlearn. So this is tough. And I think it's one of those things sometimes when you listen to podcasts like this or read advice on the internet, and it's like, sure, if you have the hiring power of a sexy startup, then you can find these people. But what if we can't find them? Because based on the industry we're in, the state of the company that we have, the part of the world that we're in, we're simply not able to access that talent. Yeah, that is very, very fair. And I think for me, this reminds me of three key things. The first is making sure you have that chief product officer who's really great at building culture, coaching their team, and so on. The second is making sure you have a really great professional development program where the product managers are meeting on a regular basis and really engaged in the process of learning about the craft of product management and product leadership. 
and making sure that they understand the difference between the kind of product management they've seen elsewhere and the kind of product management and product leadership we're talking about here. And the third, and we rarely talk about this in the body of our episodes, but that's precisely the reason I went off and decided to be a strategic advisor, because the problem I saw in the world was there is a lot of startups with a lot of great ideas, a lot of founders who have really unfair insights into really interesting problems. But there is a scarcity of experienced operators because those operators out of Uber and Facebook and Amazon, they go straight into the next unicorn or they go straight into VC or they go straight into something else. And so that was the opportunity I saw was how do I help a portfolio of companies to think and act like this and coach their teams up a little bit? And so, yeah, at the risk of self-promotion in the middle of the episode here, that's exactly what you should be looking for. Not just me, but someone who is able to coach them in this Silicon Valley style product culture. Okay, so the next thing we wanted to talk about, and this is one that we've mentioned in many previous episodes, is empowered teams. And of course, Marty Kagan is one of the brilliant minds around empowered product teams. So very much recommend listening to our episode with him. But Chris, if you were just to summarize it, what would you talk about here when you wanted to say that we have to have an empowered team in order to be able to make this transition? As you said, we've touched on this in a few different episodes about how to organize your company for scale. Marty Kagan obviously wrote the book on empowered teams. So what we're talking about is a few different things. We're talking about cross-functional squads that are empowered to take an atomic mission and go execute that mission. And they have engineers and designers and data scientists and product manager and whatever they need to get that done. And you have people within those squads who themselves are empowered to do their job full stack. And so they're not thinly slicing their responsibilities with other people. They're not being deferential to each other. They're actually coming at the problem full force, bringing their full selves. And they are working in concert together, given the space and the autonomy to do that. The specific thing I have in my mind when I write something like this over and above all the episodes we've published about this topic is I've seen examples where the designers or the engineers will start to get signal from the rest of the company and they'll start to feel really bad. Like my product manager is doing this, but other people in the company want us to do this other thing. Or my product manager has this big, bold idea, but I don't know who the executive is who's giving her permission to go do that. <laughs> And I actually uncovered some of this in some companies I've worked with where the engineering manager is freaking out. He's like, my product manager has too many opinions. <laughs> it's like, where did this come from? I didn't see anyone ask us to do this. We don't have an executive sponsor. We don't have a client who asked for this explicitly. Or a designer might say, well, someone else on the design team said we shouldn't do this. Or the CEO told me something different. And so this idea that every function understands that they are empowered to contribute with their full selves hmm. to be part of a squad which has its own autonomous atomic mission and to look to each other especially the product manager but to each other to figure out what that work is and to go at it and to win within the context of their mission this whole deck this whole narrative is really about empowering product managers to lead and empowering the rest of the business to believe in that leadership and to believe in their own ability to lead and to meet them halfway because product managers can't lead without the support of everybody else and everybody else having product thinking as well, that product culture that we keep talking about. I know we're talking a little bit later on about planning and alignment processes. We had a whole episode about alignment not that long ago. It's not that every team being empowered just goes and does whatever the hell it wants. 
it means that the teams have the context, the accountability, the strategy ownership, the outcome ownership, that they can figure out the best way to fulfill their mission and they don't need to ask for permission to do those things. It's funny, I'm currently rereading one of my favorite leadership books, which is called Turn the Ship Around, and it's actually written by the captain of a nuclear submarine who really went against the Navy tradition by creating empowered teams within a submarine. And one of the tricks that they use to get the right spirit into it is that when you came up with an idea of how to solve your problem, you didn't ask for permission, but you said to your executive or up the chain of command, you say, I intend to do X. And then they might ask you some questions and they say, very well, and you go off and do it. So in other words, you have really managed to say, okay, this is my control. This is my ownership. I intend to, I'm not asking, I'm telling, but at the same time, I'm surfacing it to my leadership so that we can have that conversation. We can stay aligned across these things. And I think that works really well. I think I intend to is a really clever hack to say, whenever you're communicating with your executive leadership, don't ask a question, tell them what you intend to do. In other words, that decision has already been made. It's not irreversible, but it is made. Yeah. I love that. It's a really great phrase to hack the mental model. It's really cool. Yeah. Now the next big prerequisite is explicit product principles. Now you could actually broaden this a little bit to just say explicit principles, but it is what we've mentioned a few times. It's about making sure that everybody in the company is working from the same playbook, the same cultural context, the same understanding of where the North Star is. And in this particular case, I'm talking about the product principles. We build products that are delightful. We build products that are consumer centric. We build developer platforms that are full stack. We prioritize growth over revenue. Whatever it is that is true for your company and that you think is generally applicable to all product decisions or all decisions across the company, specifically as it relates to product, should be documented and codified explicitly so that you can resolve or untangle debates or as many debates as possible before they even occur. I think that's really interesting. I'm not sure if we've talked about company values in the past, but I think this is closely related, right? If we have values and principles, they should make it easier to make decisions. And these product principles should be aligned with those company values. And hopefully you have some company values, but even more hopefully <laughs> you actually use them. It can be really easy to just write them and then ignore them later on. Now, this last prerequisite is another one that was not obvious to me as generally missing outside of Silicon Valley. And when people are not used to doing this, it creates a lot of dysfunction. So when you have autonomous functions at every layer of the company and autonomous units who are sharing this phrase, I intend to, as Yanev said, they will run into this peer-to-peer -peer conflict. There will be some disagreements that occur between well-meaning product managers, well-meaning designers, well-meaning engineering managers who might have a difference of opinion about how to best tactically execute some aspect of the product, the business, and so on. Now, that requires escalation. It requires that the product manager escalate to their group product manager or the chief product officer, that the engineering manager can escalate to the group engineering manager, the designer can escalate to the group designer or the design lead, so that those more senior people who have ostensibly a slightly higher vantage point, they have slightly more context, they have a broader view, can work together as peers at their level to potentially resolve that conflict. And something that's often needing to be said explicitly in cultures like Australia 
This is not like telling on your friends, you know, to the teacher. This is not being a rat in a jail cell. Snitch. Yeah, being a snitch. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. This is not a punitive action. It is a genuine and earnest question to your leadership. Hey, we have a difference of perspective here. Help us understand the broader context or what you think is the better business priority so that we can resolve this and move on and do it quickly. This is music to my ears. And in fact, one of our virtues at Circular, which is the behaviors we encourage, is escalate frequently. And, you know, I learned this very similar lesson. And it's interesting. It's nearly the reverse of what people like to do, right? They like to ask for permission, but then when they have a problem that they need help with, they just try to solve it on their own. And, you know, my least favorite bit of leadership advice, I've mentioned this before, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And I'm like, that is the worst fucking advice you could possibly give, right? If you have a problem that needs solving, put yourself in the position of a leader. Would you really rather not know about that problem because the person is having difficulty coming up with the right solution? Or would you like them to just have a bad solution? No. So in the normal course of business, if you know how to solve the problem, just go ahead and solve it. Don't ask me for permission. On the other hand, if you have a problem that you're not quite sure how to solve, come to me straight away. And the problem can be in all sorts of different forms, right? It can be interpersonal. It can be difference of opinion. It can be, we don't have the right sort of information. We don't have the right sort of resources. We can't hit this deadline, whatever it is. Escalate quickly. It is not snitching. It is not being a squeaky wheel. The other one I've heard is like, it's complaining. It's not complaining to draw your leadership's attention to a problem that it is their responsibility to help you resolve. If in doubt, escalate. If you're thinking to yourself, maybe I should escalate this, that's probably a sign that you should. So escalate early and often. That allows you to course correct quickly, allows your leadership to help you make the right calls. Now, that requires permission for all of the operational people in the company, but it also requires strong managers with a service leadership mindset, and it requires managers that are not conflict-averse or passive. Now, you see a lot of managers who, upon having something escalated to them, will almost pass the buck or say, you've got to go deal with that, or you should really go sort that out, or don't come to me with problems, or they will let these problems fester, or they perceive speaking to their peer, like the group product manager speaking to the group eng manager, is somehow a conflict that they don't want to have. And so this fails quickly if your managers group product managers, directors, CEO, don't like conflict. <laughs> Again, I've been in many yeah. situations where I've been brought in to help rotate the culture or fix something that's not scaling. And there are like 17 things the team is really upset about. And the CTO or someone else were vaguely aware of them, but weren't addressing them. And I literally like call a code yellow. Let's get all of the people in the room who are aware of these problems. Let's write them all down. Let's stack rank them in terms of impact on your productivity and your forward momentum. And let's me as the chief product officer and the chief technology officer eliminate those problems from your life and eliminate them like this week, today, or empower someone to go eliminate them for us. And then we have a regular check-in to make sure that those things get eliminated. On a daily basis, escalation should be baked into everyone's life. Yeah, I feel a full episode on this coming on, Chris. It's such an important principle. It's nearly one of those things that it's a secret key. It sounds like a small thing, but if you're doing escalation right, it both requires and unlocks a completely different cultural approach to leadership. It's nearly the bit that allows you to invert that leadership pyramid into more of that servant leadership and from less of a directive leadership point of view. So yeah, this is really important. Yeah. And I've got a lot of examples where I had to learn this the hard way too. So we can talk about that in that episode. 
So the next slide here is product managers. Where do they live? I have seen product managers live in interesting vertical orgs where they're trying to win accounts in gaming or social or healthcare. And the product manager has no engineers. <laughs> There's no designers. They're ostensibly some kind of business analyst expert on a vertical or something. And they're out there in this weird go-to-market by vertical part of the business. I've seen product managers who are in R&D, but they are a product manager for like four or five or six different engineering teams, and they're spread really, really thin. I have seen all sorts of weird things with product owners and business analysts, and there's all of this confusion. So at the end of the day, the ideal model is you have one cross-functional squad with a mission, and that squad has a product manager, an eng manager, and a bunch of engineers, and ideally a product designer as well. There are a few other additional roles that would be really, really great, a product marketer, a data scientist, but product manager, eng manager, and a group of engineers. That's like bare metal minimum. And you have one of those for each cross-functional squad, each of them with their own mission. Now you can stretch the model a little bit. You can have one product manager across two squads or at a real pinch, three squads if you're trying to grow into this and you're a little bit like an awkward teenager and you don't have enough staff or you don't have enough capital. But the ideal is that one product manager per squad. The reason for this, I guess it's important to be clear, is that it's the squad that is the primary unit of decision-making and execution and accountability. And so product manager needs to be part of a squad in order to be able to do that job. Remember, a product manager, in a sense, they're like a brain in a jar, right? The role doesn't actually deliver any customer-facing output. And so if they're off to the side, if you've got a product manager who doesn't have the rest of that body, then they're not going to be able to be very effective. They're completely useless. Of course, the most common one is the engineering team is over there and the product managers are over there on other sides of the office. And you often hear engineers grumbling, oh, the bloody product managers don't know what they're doing. And the product managers are saying some version of the engineers are fucking it all up and they're not shipping fast enough. And there's this us versus them mentality, right? That should never happen. The us needs to be the squad, right? That's the us that you're talking about. You should identify more with your squad than with your fellow product managers. Otherwise, the organization is structured incorrectly. That's exactly right. And so if you're using the phrase, the engineers, you're wrong, right? It should be my engineers, the engineers in my squad, my team. There should never be an amorphous group of engineers and an amorphous group of product managers because the us versus them sets in immediately. So we've zoomed in on product managers and I think the question is, okay, these guys are a brain in a jar. So how do PMs interact with the business and with all the different other functions within the business? For each of these, I'm gonna describe what the product manager does and then what the other functions need to do to support that. So the first thing a product manager does is collect data. They collect data from all kinds of sources. They collect data from customers, from telemetry systems, from competitors, from market trends, from business analysts, from Gartner Magic Quadrant reports, from whatever they can get their hands on. And they use that data to triangulate strong but loosely held instincts and opinions about what their users need and what their product needs. Now, of course, the responsibility of the other functions is to provide accurate, accessible data to the product managers. This might be the sales team saying, hey, PMs, here are the top three objections we're hearing in the sales meetings. 
the support team could be like, hey, here are the seven things that we're getting the most tickets on from the support team. The marketing team, hey, here are the objections we're hearing when we survey the market. The CEO, hey, the investors are saying we absolutely have to hit these goals, otherwise we're in trouble, we need to raise money. All of these functions need to be providing data to the product management team so they can triangulate the right course of action forward. So the word data sounds quite technical. It can come in lots of different forms. It's not just about having a data warehouse and saying, okay, I've collected all the data. It's really about collecting all the knowledge and synthesizing it into a view. So the reason I use the word data is because a lot of product managers and books you read will say, you need to be data-driven, data-driven. And what I'm actually trying to do here is broaden the definition of data from just experiments, hypotheses, and telemetry to all available data, including from sales and support and marketing and industry and so on. And the last refinement I wanna make is, I talked about these other functions giving the product manager data. I wanna be clear, the product manager should not be just sitting on their laurels waiting to be handed data, right? They should go and seek that data. They should be able to dig into you know, data warehouses. They should understand how to go get the data for themselves. But this is about, also asking the other functions to be proactive in communicating data to the product management team. The next responsibility of product management is once they have all of those insights is to develop clear hypotheses and opinions about the future of their product. Oftentimes I see product managers going from hypothesis to hypothesis test to test, small iteration to small iteration, and it's a little bit akin to stumbling around in the dark. You need to take a breath, lift your gaze from the GPS, which is the pure data view of the world, and look at the road and look at what's going on and develop some sense of, here's what I imagine the future to look like. Here's what I imagine the future of my product to look like. Here's where I imagine we're going. You obviously don't want to be locking that in stone. You want to test and iterate and hypothesize and all this kind of stuff. But sharing that vision with the company can help animate and motivate everybody. Now, the responsibility of the other functions in this is to provide context and to contribute to that vision. So the leadership team should obviously be providing a vision about where the business is going to inform where the product should be going. And other stakeholders should be making themselves available to review, refine, and respond to that vision that the product manager is putting out there and really dig into the details and have something to say. I can't tell you how many times I've seen product leaders put a vision out there, put a roadmap out there, and all the other functions remain largely silent. And then some point along the line go, what is product doing again? I don't know what product is doing. And they haven't really looped us in. And well, we've developed our own roadmap and we have our own vision. And it's like, dude, you got handed the vision. You got asked for your feedback. You were encouraged to participate. We try to set up meetings with you but there wasn't this kind of leaned in enthusiasm. And so this is about the leadership team providing mm. broad vision and about everybody else contributing to reviewing and refining the vision the product manager helps to shape and to publish. And I think the one thing I mentioned in the context of the chief product officer earlier on is that often there is a strong element of vision that comes from the founder or founders, and that can be really valuable and it can be really empowering as well. It's nearly like that's the prevailing wind direction. And so in a business where the founder does have a strong vision, it is still the responsibility of the PM to develop product vision, but it needs to be in the context of the founder's vision. It's harder to have truly empowered PMs in that model, but it's just as important 
And so there's a little bit of extra work to do there to make sure that we have that proper alignment of vision. What typically happens in my experience is the CEO has like a 40,000 foot vision. Here's where I see this business going. And the product manager is still responsible for like the 30,000 and 20,000 foot view. And the PMs are responsible for the 10,000 foot view. And so generally what ends up happening is the CEO's vision tends to be too broad or high level to be actionable from quarter to quarter, year to year. And that's what the chief product officer's job is to do, is to translate that high level vision into something a little bit more tactical. The next big thing a product manager needs to do is to craft that roadmap. So you have a vision, a sense of where everything is going over the course of 12, 24, 48 months. Well, now what is your pragmatic actionable set of steps you're going to take in order to test, validate, and build your product in that direction. And that roadmap is not a backlog. It's not an undifferentiated set of ideas. It is a sequenced set of bets. It's in order. And some of those first bets should have some kind of timeline attached to them. Now, the responsibility of the other functions, again, is to contribute to that roadmap, to provide all the data, to provide all their insights, and then once handed a draft roadmap and invited to collaborate with the product leadership team, they make themselves available. They provide concrete feedback and insights. Again, they don't take this kind of passive view. Well, that's just the product roadmap and we don't have to get too involved with that. It's important here to say when we talk about a roadmap, we're talking about how we're going to learn, what tests we're going to build. And of course, it's not like you have this thing and you just follow it. We want to be agile and responsive and learning now, the next big thing a product manager needs to do is to align all functions. So oftentimes product managers are thought of as the people who translate business requirements to engineering. And that is just like wrong, wrong, wrong. A product manager is someone who works with all stakeholders to do all of that data collection, triangulation, visioneering, and then to work with all functions in order to operationalize, to execute the plan. So that means design, support, sales, marketing, and of course, engineering. The job of the product manager is to align all of those functions behind the thing they're building, behind the roadmap of deliverables they're trying to deliver. And of course, the responsibility of the other functions is to align themselves with that roadmap. Now, we have a whole episode about alignment, which is well worth listening to. But I've seen companies who, at the point of having a product team deliver a very thoughtful roadmap, will then proceed to have the marketing team deliver their own roadmap and the sales team deliver their own roadmap, all of which were not in alignment with or response to the product roadmap, which is disastrous, right? It's like everyone's got their own roadmap. Horrific. What the hell is going on? <laughs> right? So... In a perfect world, competent product leadership has triangulated all of the requirements and concerns of everybody, mapped that out over some period of time, some time horizon, and everybody else has said, well, hey, it looks like the product team is focused on this problem or this feature or this initiative. Well, guess what? The marketing team needs to also be ready to support that initiative when it comes out. The support team needs to be ready to support that initiative when it comes out and so on and so forth. And so every function needs to pay close attention to helping to craft that set of actions and to prepare themselves to align with those actions when and if necessary. That's really, really important. You don't want 17 different plans across the whole company. Absolutely. This is just about alignment and it should be iterative. Again, it's not about the PM saying this is how it's going to be and you all have to get in line. Alignment is a process of mutual adjustment. And to your point, Chris, the role of the PM is to actually 
synthesize, gather that knowledge and understanding, going back to your first point around collecting data and bringing that into a roadmap that makes sense to all the functions. But then of course, that can happen over multiple iterations. The point is at the end, there needs to be alignment across a single roadmap and it is the PM's job to make sure that alignment takes place. Yes, exactly. And so please do check out our episode about alignment to really dig deep into that subject. So the next area of responsibility for the product manager is to gather requirements from all the key stakeholders. Again, those stakeholders are not just the business, not just customers. They're all the stakeholders, support and sales and marketing, the CEO, the board, the market, what have you. But then dig really deep into, right, for this iteration, here's precisely what we need to get done. And to develop detailed documentation, designs, instructions, tickets, stories, tasks, whatever tool you want to use to gather and document those requirements and to make them concrete. They may change, they may evolve, they may adjust as you learn, but you need to be the curator of those requirements and make sure there's a source of truth. And of course, the responsibility of the other functions is to participate when asked and to review the requirements that have been gathered and to help the product manager understand their blind spots, to fill in the blanks, to challenge certain assumptions, and to inform those product requirements at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. That is a really important thing. The product manager is a curator, is a synthesizer, is the one that holds the source of truth, but they need a lot of help to gather and to clarify those requirements. And so this is very much, again, this act of synthesis, taking all of this knowledge and information, requirements, constraints, all of these things from across the business and bringing them into the same place so that you can actually plan a coherent and unified response. And the way we've talked about that prior to this point was around the high-level vision, the high-level roadmap. In this case, we're talking about the specific next concrete deliverable and how everyone needs to organize themselves to get that done. The next responsibility of a PM is to execute. You've got all the requirements. You've got it all figured out. You've socialized it everywhere. You now need to work with all these craftspeople, again, support, marketing, sales, design, engineering to execute on those requirements in a really high quality way, make sure everyone is aligned and singing the same tune from the same hymn book. The responsibility of all the other functions is to support that execution, right? To not be off doing some other sales motion, marketing some other thing in some other way, to have a design team that is occupied by some other large and ancillary design project, to be in lockstep with the product team, the next third last responsibility of a product manager is to announce the next product iteration. So when relevant, not every iteration will be announced. There's some very, very minor changes, constantly shipping changes into production, but some of these changes are more meaningful and it falls on the product manager to work with the product marketer, the marketing team, and so on, in order to make sure that word about this change gets out to users in an effective and clear way. And of course, the responsibility of the other functions in this is to support that, to have the product marketing manager, the marketing team, the copywriters, the designers, the PR and comms team, and so on, support that announcement. Work with the product manager to make sure they have all the talking points, all the details, all the specificity in order to tell a great story. I would just note that announcing product releases isn't 
exclusive to customers or to the external world. I think announcing these releases and making sure there's coordination around these releases is really important internally as well. And one thing that I see good product managers do and good companies do is an up-to-date status of the features and the functionality of their product that is rapidly changing. So even if you're not publicly announcing releases, you need to probably be doing it internally from an earlier stage than you would expect or people stop understanding what the product is that they're selling or supporting. And that is absolutely the PM's responsibility. Absolutely. Actually, what I have in the ebook here, which I failed to mention, is sales enablement, right? So part of announcing is making sure that the sales team has been given the talking points, their pitch decks have been updated, their materials, their product spec sheets, whatever they're working from is updated even when there isn't a public announcement or before there's a public announcement so the sales team isn't caught blindsided. The second last responsibility of a product manager is to measure the outcomes of their product changes and to continue to feed those insights into the top of this process. As Jan Evan and I have talked about over and over again, this is not a linear process. It's not just a moment in time. It's not something that you should do way later. There should be a lot of experimentation, iterative and agile development, learning all the time, iterating all the time, but paying close attention to well, this quarter, we're really trying to move the needle on retention. And well, did these seven things we did ultimately ladder up to improvement in retention? And the responsibility of other functions is to hold the product management's feet to the fire about that, is to have the leadership team set those OKRs or those high-level KPIs and to then ask the product management team, where did we land on that? Where did all of that work you guys did where did we end up? Was that actually effective? That's right. And that second piece, I think, is actually a really important cultural marker of being product-led because this is about all of the other functions measuring the value of their efforts by the impact to customers, to the business, based on the strategy and the outcomes that have been agreed to. So you're moving away from bringing a craftsperson who is just building something or doing something for the sake of it because they've been told to and feeling like you've had a good day at work, a good month at work because you did what you were told to saying, my time is only as valuable as the extent to which it contributes to driving the results that the business cares about. And so what you'll find is in a product-led org, the rest of the team, the engineers, the designers, the marketers, and so on, are going to be like, hey, we've done all this work, show us the results, and how can we make sure that these results happen? Whereas in a less product-led org, there will be a lot more apathy from the non-product functions. And going back to the previous episode, the point of being a product-led organization is not that you have product managers out in front. It is that product thinking and product measurement are the defining characteristic of how the entire organization thinks and measures itself. The true sign of a product-led organization is when your non-product functions are thinking about product in this way. This is so, so important. It's something I tend to not emphasize enough. If the entire company is measuring revenue, then the entire company is going to be optimizing for revenue and sales, landing those big accounts. If the entire company is measuring product growth or retention or engagement, then everybody is going to be marching to the tune of engagement and retention in the product. And so what you measure is what you move. Now, that's not to say revenue is not a product metric, but to make sure that the product is driving those metrics and there's a direct correlation between those two things. The last responsibility I've got listed here for a product manager is to protect. And this one's pretty important, especially when you're transitioning and when you have people who are not used to working in this environment or you have a CEO who's randomizing or you have a sales team that's very strong and very used to getting their way. The job of the product manager is to be opinionated enough 
or to be effective enough or to be a good enough communicator that they're able to build consensus and to ultimately protect the product vision, roadmap, and execution. The ability for the product manager to say no. And that is actually a word the product manager will, in one way or another, with some level of diplomacy, pretty much be saying much more than yes. Their job is to communicate that vision, communicate that roadmap, communicate those requirements that they're executing against, communicating the announcements, communicating the metrics, and explaining why they're doing what they're doing, all of which mitigates debate and thrash. But then when the debate and thrash still creeps in, and people still say, why are we doing this, not that? Or why aren't we doing seven other things as well? To be able to have the confidence, the culture, the clarity to say, no, we are not changing this. Or if we change this, here is the real cost and to protect that plan. And the responsibility of all the other functions is to have empathy for that role. In other words, to understand that your PM cannot always say yes, that they are balancing many competing interests and trying their best to triangulate and thread that needle and to understand that your specific concern from your specific vantage point may not end up being the number one priority. Now, I want to stress, this is hopefully a failure state. You've hopefully set the right OKRs, the right priorities, the right North Stars, the right consensus, that support and sales and marketing are all on the same page and they're enthusiastically agreed. But even with that, there will be disagreements about tactics and to just have some empathy for the role of the product manager in that situation. Um, it's not just the product manager, but yes, the hate can be on it. Everybody wants a piece because the product manager is the interface of the squads and the squads are the resource that can build stuff and do stuff and support various other functions in the business. So it's quite common for people to go to the product managers and ask them for stuff. And yeah, saying no is really important. As a very quick aside, it can be easy to find this bureaucratic to say, oh, okay, no, nothing gets done until the product manager and the squad actually decides. And sometimes when the product manager gets very good at saying no when needed, people will try to do an end run around them and go straight to the engineers or other members of the squad. Oh man, you know, this is one of the biggest areas of organ rejection where the product managers are trying to wrangle these priorities and they're trying to set the vision. And the other functions are like, screw you, dude. I'm going to talk straight to the designer. I'm going to talk straight to the engine manager. And there's all of this like end run arounds. You're right, Yanev, it can sound bureaucratic and we like everybody to be empowered and everybody to be a flat org. But if the culture is to undermine the product manager, it's really, really bad. And the rest of the squad needs to be on the same page that they need to reroute everybody back to the product manager. And if it's not in the PRD or it's not in the stories or it's not in the requirements, it's not getting done. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about is we've talked a lot about the things that product managers need, the way the organization needs to be set up, where they live, how they interact with the business. But as important as that is what do product managers not need in order to be able to do their jobs? So what's important to note is, you know, we've talked a little bit about these cross-functional mission-oriented teams. These are teams that are product manager, an engineering manager, engineers, a product designer. If you're lucky, you might have a data scientist, a product marketer on the team. And these are the atomic units designed to go after a mission for the company. Solve for growth, solve for discovery, solve for billing, solve for account management and retention, solve for some fundamental aspect of the product or the business. Now, 
these teams are essentially pre-funded and trusted by executives to do what it takes to achieve their mission. So if these teams are set up well, there are three key things that the product managers and their squads do not need. Executive sponsorship, permission to go pursue a deliverable, and budget approval, right? You've been given permission to go solve this mission, so you don't need to get permission again, and you don't need an executive sponsor to bless each and every iteration along the way. The budget's already been approved, the team's already been set up, the people have already been assigned. And so the team is autonomous and they're able to go and make decisions based on their mission, their scope, and the group of people they have at hand to go solve the problem they've been assigned to go solve over the course of quarters, halves, and years in some cases. How many times have we heard of stories where someone with a great idea in a company has tried to build consensus and executive sponsorship for it, only for it to go up to some kind of committee and die? These people at the coalface who are assigned to solve problems in the business, trying to get their leadership to understand the depth or breadth or nuances of the problem. And they're like, no, nah, we don't care about that. We're going to go do something else. These people are really uniquely qualified because of the virtue they've been working with the problem over time, because they're at the edges, because they have all of the context to make some of these decisions at the edges. The point is, if you put these roadblocks in the way, you are not allowing your team to have true ownership of the problem and you are slowing them down and you are not moving the decision-making to where the context is. So instead of the team knowing what's important to them and pursuing it with all their energy, they are constantly asking for permission or asking for guidance or asking for sponsorship. And that really slows them down and it makes them less accountable. How can they truly own the outcomes? How can they truly be held accountable for that if the decisions are not theirs? And so I think the really important thing here is to say, if you are putting these obstacles in the way of the team, you are making them less effective. And that's why it's so important to remove these barriers. Now, of course, Yanev, that sounds really, really scary to some traditional business thinkers, right? They're like, hang on a second. You just want me to give money and freedom and resources to some people and hope to God they're going to go do something, you know, aligned with my business. How is that possible, right? And so the very next consideration here is, how do you create these empowered teams while maintaining alignment with the business and the needs of the company? Chris, I think that's a perfect segue to talk about what do we do instead? We want empowered teams that don't have to ask for permission, but of course the fear, and it's a real fear, it's not just something that people make up, is that the teams will just spin their wheels or do whatever they want and be ineffective. And then that you as a leader, by failing to provide instruction, you have failed. So how do you stop yourself failing as a leader if you are now leading teams that do not come to you for permission? So the first job of a great leadership team that's trying to push this accountability and autonomy and alignment to the edges is to create empowered squads filled with empowered people. What does that really mean? It means four key things, and we'll dig into each one very quickly. The first is clear mission with minimal cross-dependencies or blocking between teams. So minimum blocking and cross-dependencies between the teams, between these cross-functional squads. The thing I mean most about clear mission is I've seen a company organize itself a little bit like a pinball machine instead of a puzzle. <laughs> so it organized the squads in such a way that a project or problem would come into R&D and then it would bounce off the various flippers. And if it didn't hit any of the flippers, it would fall to this kind of catch-all team at the bottom. And the head of product arranged it that way deliberately. 
And what I had to explain was, no, it shouldn't be a pinball machine. It should be a puzzle. You want to map the territory of problems or product surface areas, and you want to ensure that each team's mission has minimal overlap with each other and they fit together nicely. And so if a piece of work or a problem or a priority comes into the business, it's really clear which team and which mission that problem belongs to. So a management consultant would call this mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. The other thing to think about is what we've described as horizontal dependencies, creating this puzzle or this mutually exclusive map of problems. The other challenge I've seen with teams is that there is this vertical dependency where there are front-end teams and back-end teams. And the front-end teams are not empowered to deliver back-end capabilities and the back-end teams not empowered to build front-end features. And so there is this built-in dependency between the two strata. As humans, there will always be a loss of context between two people. There will be useful information, useful thoughts that are lost. And so there's actually a degradation in quality of thinking every time there is a handoff. A handoff, meaning something going from being owned by one person or one team to another team, is very costly. If you just keep moving a problem from one person to the next to the next, it's nearly like a version of that children's game where you're whispering in each other's ears, right? And the context gets lost and the solution becomes worse and worse. And then you unsurprisingly get poor overall organizational performance. The second key thing is clear roles with minimum cross-dependencies between roles, where there aren't these extremely thin slices. And we've talked about this in a previous episode where the product manager has a business analyst and a product owner and a couple of other product people that they have to trip over and they have this kind of full stack ownership of their part of the problem. If you have a lot of dependencies, what that means is you have a diffusion of ownership, which means a diffusion of responsibility, right? If something is everybody's problem, then it becomes nobody's problem. And so you get less of that sense of ownership and accountability to the problem. Now, it's important to note, it's impossible to eliminate cross-dependencies between roles and between teams. We're not saying there will be zero cross-dependency or zero ambiguity for some of the work, but the point is to design the org to minimize those. So those things are exceptions rather than the rule. The third key thing is well-funded teams with great people in the key roles. So oftentimes you'll see product managers without engineers or product managers with insufficient engineers or a team without a product designer. So a well-funded team with the right people on the team is very important. And the fourth key thing here is a strong culture of service leadership with that culture of escalation that we talked about earlier in the episode, where the team is able to work together collectively and work across teams when necessary. But when there is any kind of dispute or uncertainty, they're able to work with their leadership to resolve those quickly. So the word we're looking for here, Chris, is autonomy, right? What we are doing is giving our teams and our product managers a strong degree of autonomy within the context of their team's goals and mission. Now, if you have these super well-empowered, super well-funded, minimal cross-dependency teams with people inside that have minimal cross-dependency between them and a strong culture of escalation and service leadership, the next question is, okay, how do you get these atomic units to be aligned with the business on an ongoing basis? There has to be a business-wide 
planning and alignment cycle that allows the business, the leadership team to express sufficient context and clarity about where they're headed and where the business needs to go such that the individual squads can then digest that, turn that into a more localized, pragmatic and tactical plan of action. One of the frameworks that I've used for this in the past comes from Eventbrite originally called the W process. And that sort of talks about the fact that there are nearly sequential top-down and bottom-up aspects to this process. And it's sort of nearly like challenge response type of thing, right? Where it is the responsibility of the leadership of the business to set an overall strategy and an overall direction. But the point here is we are not talking about anarchy. We are talking about a structured process of alignment and agreement. And I use the word contract, right? Like it's nearly like there is going to be a contract between the leadership of the organization and each team. And that contract is going to be high level and it's going to be focused on delivering outcomes against objectives aligned with the team's mission rather than on a set of deliverables but it's not open season. And in order to get to a well-defined contract, you need to have the structure that we've been talking about, but you need this challenge response where the leadership sets the context, the teams or the squads come back with their proposals, and then there is that process of, again, feedback and alignment before things are finalized, and then we can move over to execution. And then during the actual execution phase, you wanna have some check-ins to make sure that everything remains aligned, Entropy always increases, and so keeping things aligned is a piece of work in itself, and you need a cadence around that. But this is really another representation of that W process. We'll put a link in the show notes that shows really the respective roles of the leadership and of each squad in reaching that aligned plan that actually is moving towards a strategic objective. In the slide here, you'll see it's organized as a loop, but it is absolutely the same. And again, we've had a whole episode about this alignment and planning process, but it is the idea that the business shares the priorities, express their OKRs, the squads each respond with a narrative and a roadmap, and the squad then meets with leadership for alignment, and then the squads go off and execute with, as you said, a regular check-in to avoid that entropy. Okay, so that's basically the deck. The last slide deals with, okay, what now? What are the next steps now that we're all agreed on this high-level architecture for rotating to a product leadership model. Now, of course, there are many, many, many next steps. There's an infinite list of things you need to go do next and many, many decisions and refinements and optimizations that you need to go do. But there are four major things that I've listed here that are worth thinking about. The first is to read and digest the other two eBooks on the Scaling Startups series. Because the first one goes deep on exactly what is product and why focus and polish is essential to scale. And the other ebook deals with going deeper on this process of organizing squads, empowering squads, going through the business alignment and thinking about that tactical alignment day to day, week to week. So those two ebooks are really important to understand on either side of this presentation. The other key next step is to present some version of that whole narrative, all three ebooks to the whole business so that they understand what you're trying to achieve and what their role in this rotation, in this change, or in this product leadership culture is. And as we talked about earlier in the episode, to actually make it part of your onboarding process so that new employees are familiar with this and make it part of your regular communication and conversation part of performance reviews and part of all hands meetings 
to make sure that these principles, these concepts, these behaviors are not forgotten. They're deeply ingrained. The next key step is to make sure that all the prerequisites are in place. In the ebook, it's specifically pages 18 to 24, right? About having a product leader, making sure you've got great product managers around or a great product coach, making sure that you deeply ingrain the culture of escalation. These are all essential before you've just randomly reorg the company into squads and before you're deciding that you're a product-led company. And then you want to go ahead and actually implement the principles in those other two ebooks refocusing your product and getting very, very clear about what you do and what you don't do and about all those ways of working and patterns of engagement that are about managing a product-led org at scale. Now, I've got a little warning here on the slide, which is don't try to do this by yourself and alone. You really need to find a great chief product officer, a great transformational coach, a great advisor, someone who has lived and breathed this model for. There are thousands of counterintuitive and subtle things that I can't capture in a 38, 39 slide ebook. And so it is really essential that you get help and that you have someone who can help you see around corners and fast forward you to the right answers as quickly as possible. Goodness, Chris, that does sound important. So I wonder if there's anyone you know who might actually fit the bill if you're looking to make a change like this. I have no idea what you mean, <laughs> It's time for the plug. I've carved out some time to work with a small handful of companies on these kind of subjects. So check out chrissard.com slash advisory. And there's a place there where you can reach out to me and get in contact. I'd love to hear what you're working on. Fantastic. You can find your way to this deck as well. Yanev, how about you? How can people catch up with you? Well, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I try to be less boring than most of the other people on there. So please give me a follow or even connect. If you're a listener to the Startup Podcast, I would be honored to be connected with you. Awesome. And don't forget to please rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. That really helps us out. And share the show with your friends, fellow founders, investors, and operators. That really helps grow the show and helps us to help more operators in startup land. And as usual, thank you so, so much for listening. And Yanev, great conversation as always. Thanks, Chris. It was really good. And thanks for sharing that deck with the community. I hope folks found it useful. Catch you in the next one.